Shalom and welcome again to another edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I am Rabbi Richard Address, the director of Jewish Sacred Aging and the host of these podcasts. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different uh, break in our usual schedule uh, today to welcome two very, very special colleagues, uh, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, who is the rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida, Rabbi Greg Marks, who is the rabbi of Beth Orr in Springhouse, Pennsylvania, uh, in suburban Philadelphia, um, because they have just returned from a rabbinic mission to Poland to work with the refugees from Ukraine. And uh, I thank them very much for, they're just still on jet lag coming home, and um, they accepted our invitation from uh, the Seekers of Meaning group to to really reflect upon what they found, what they saw, especially juxtaposed to the festival of Passover with so many themes that probably uh, resonated during the time. So first of all, uh, Jeff and Greg, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you're safe. I hope you're well. Um, Jeff, you you were instrumental in putting this trip together. Why'd you do it? It's really very simple, Richard. My brother, ask me, what are you planning on telling your ch grandchildren in 10 years when they ask you, Grandpa, what did you do during this great crisis? And I realized I had to do more than simply write articles and preach sermons. At that moment, I conceived of the Hineni trip. Hineni means here I am, here we are, and enlisted about 30 reform colleagues from the United States, from Europe and Israel uh, to, number one, uh, bring supplies, and we brought almost two tons of supplies, medical and otherwise, uh, to Krakow for Ukrainian refugees, to bring donations, and we've raised almost a million dollars in donations, but mostly to bring ourselves, to bring ourselves in the mitzvah, the sacred work of bearing witness to what is going on, to seeing how Poland has responded, to witness the spectacular work of the JCC in Krakow, and as much as possible to make a difference. Greg, uh, uh, the amount of material that you brought and the amount of money, uh, you didn't have a lot of time to plan this trip. Uh, if I remember, it was, it was really organized beginning, right, Jeff, around the beginning of March? Um, even, later, even later than that, we really put this all together in about a week. How, Greg, how did you circulate the idea that you wanted you know, materials and money, and how did that work? How how did you do that? You know, sometimes it's very difficult, Richie, to uh, get people motivated for various different programs and whatnot. But when I told people I was going to go to Poland to bear witness, to bring supplies, uh, the amount of outpouring we received was remarkable. I mean, truly spectacular. I had children in my religious school making these little toy packages that we could hand out to the children in the refugee centers. I had people writing checks and, and making donations to the synagogue so that we could transfer the money. I mean, it was, it was an avalanche of love, of support. Um, and as Jeff said, people want to be able to do something. I mean, there's tremendous frustration. There's tremendous pain. Um, we're sitting on the sidelines watching a catastrophe unfold. And when I told people I were I was going, they were they were grateful, um, and they wanted to participate. So in a matter of days, if I may say so, I'm rather proud of this. Bethor raised $111,000 um, from uh, from our members, and and I and I, I, I there were some rabbis who brought luggage. 
I, I brought less luggage and more cash uh, because I thought that was easier to bring through the airport. Wow. So yeah. th- this is not a, a around, you know, this is not a hop, skip it and jump down to West Palm Beach on a flight from Philly. Uh, this is a long flight. Um, exhausting. Um, what was it like when you got off that plane in Poland? What, what, what was your first impression when you walked out of customs and you're there, you're there? What, walk me through that. Jeff, can I take it? Go right ahead. Well, first of all, uh, you know, I want to thank Jeff and Don Gore and uh, Jay Squared for putting this together in the last in the last several in the last several days. Um, when I got off the airport, it was well organized. There were people there to take us to the hotel. We took our luggage, we offloaded it onto onto vans. And honestly, when I, you know, listen, Krakow is a town of about seven hundred thousand people. I honestly expected. Uh, to see people sleeping in tents. I expected to see people sleeping on subway gratings. I had no idea what it was going to look like. I can't give you the hard numbers, but approximately 50% of the population has been absorbed into Krakow in the last several months. I, I expected to see pandemonium, and that is not what I saw. I saw uh, people going about their days. Frankly, I was a little surprised. I saw tourists in the main square. I saw restaurants full. I saw a normal town uh, that had done an extraordinary job in absorbing these people into people's homes, into their apartments, into apartment buildings, being managed by the city, um, and, uh, and the JCC having a major role in that, being a very tiny organization. Uh, uh, amongst all the organizations, so I did not, I did not find what I expected to find, and wow. I was pleasantly surprised. So, Jeff, did, go ahead, Jeff. I want to add to that that this is my second time in Krakow. Uh, the first time I was there, it really was a launching pad for uh, a, a trip to Auschwitz-Birkenau. This is very different. Uh, I was impressed then, and was impressed uh, on this trip. With the beauty of the city, the cosmopolitan nature of the city, how young the city is, how beautiful it is. It has the largest uh, market square of any town in Europe, uh, really in many ways uh, left over from medieval times. But the other thing about Poland is that Poland has a very weird and in some ways troubling uh, and ambivalent and ambiguous relationship to the Jewish past. the Polish relationship with the Jews is one that has been, well, to use the Facebook term, relationship is complicated. I think that Poland, to respond to what Greg has said, has gone overboard in welcoming refugees, partially in teshuva and repentance uh, for its past. Certainly, it is possible to say, as a young Polish Jewish woman said on our trip, that Poland is treating the Ukrainians the way that no one treated our people in 1939. And so this is really a tikkun. This is really a repairing of that history. And I I, I walked away from this experience uh, really blown away by the graciousness, the hospitality, and really the altruism of Poles in the midst of what is the greatest humanitarian crisis in Europe since 1945. You were there for a couple of days. What was it like what, when you got out of the hotel, you had all this stuff? What, how did you interact with, with the refugees? Did you go to the border? Uh, were you, or did you stay in Krakow? Uh, or was it a combination of, of both? 
Well, he went uh, from Krakow uh, to the border. We participated in the sacred act of sorting the supplies, which was, you know, it, it was, I don't want to say mindless, but it was very important, I think, for all of our souls to have that hands-on experience. We went to Shemesh, which is a town on the Poland-Ukraine border. There we experienced what it was like for refugees to come over the border. We interacted with relief workers, with the NGOs, a third of whom are Israelis, many of which are Jewish organizations, like, for example, Hadassah, and other uh, faith uh, traditions and ethnic traditions as well. And then in one of the highlights of the experience for us, uh, we all took part in a Seder for refugees and NGOs in a hotel on the border, uh, leading everyone in a rather raucous and beautiful uh, experience of retelling our people's redemption from slavery with the prayer for liberation for all. Greg, you're, you're, did you have a chance to, in, in your dealing with, have any conversations of, you know, more than peripheral with any of the refugees? Uh, I know there's a language issue, but um, did you have an opportunity to do that? Well, I did, um, you know, and I, I, I met with a woman uh, and, and Jeff was in the room. It was not a personal interaction. Um, uh, her name is escaping me at the moment, but I, but, but some of the things she said really stayed with me. And Jeff has written about this, um, uh, it, uh, about the hatred that she feels uh, for the Russian people. She said to her, she said to our group that um, she is forbidding her three-year-old child from speaking Russian. And someone in the group says, "I mean, you don't, you don't hate all Russians. You hate Putin." And she said, oh, no, 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 I, I, I hate the Russians and I want my daughter to hate the Russians because she said the raping and the killing and the and the and the and the butchery is not being done by Putin. It's being done by the Russians. And it really broke our hearts. Our There was a collective sigh in the room that this woman had such rage um, and, and far be it from us to to tell her, oh no, don't think like that. Yeah. I mean, that is a that is a natural reaction uh, to when you're when when she commented. She says there are not enough suture kits. This is what she said: there were not enough suture kits for women following rape because following the raping, the the soldiers disfigured the women. She says, why do why do people do that? Um, and so one of the things that really I walked away from was. Um, just the rage and what to do with that spiritually and emotionally. Um, and, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, Jeff and I have had some conversations about this. You know, we're, we're told at the Passover Seder uh, to take 10 uh, drops of wine out of our cup, you know. Um, but in some of the Midrashim that we realize, there's, there's tremendous rage and there's anger. It's almost like a comic book story, you know, God sending Pharaoh down to the bottom of the ocean where he drowned and was there for 50 days and deny the gates of heaven and he's in the portals of hell. So there's that other side of giving expression to, um, to the fury the, that we feel when we see injustice that thankfully didn't make it into mainstream Judaism, into the Seder, but it's there. Um, it's there. It's there. You know, pour out thy wrath upon thy enemies, yeah, right? Right, right, right? It's right. there. And, and, we, and we heard that from this woman. And Greg really tells the truth about this. I think that encounter with that woman, who, by the way, turned out to be the 
a translator at the Seder that I did several nights later. This, the story here is that my flight was canceled coming back to the States. So I just did a U-turn, went back to Krakow. And that was, as we say in Yiddish, bashert. That was meant to be because I was able to help with the Seder at the JCC for Holocaust survivors and then for Ukrainian refugees. The three of our young colleagues, women rabbinical students, actually put together and they did a spectacular job. And this woman was the translator at that uh, Seder. And I had the opportunity to speak to her more. And I came to realize something. I came to realize that we are taught in America that it's wrong to hate. And most of the time it is wrong to hate. But what do you do when you are the victim of hateful actions? As I said in my article today on Religion News Service, you can't expect people to sing Kumbaya. And we experienced that rage from her. Frankly, what Greg alluded to and what he named and what he spoke, hearing the people at Natan, the Israeli NGO at the border, saying the chilling words were running out of rape kits, words that I never thought I would hear, really forced me to encounter in a way that I've never encountered, really, the depths of human depravity. On the other hand, when you meet these refugees, when you look into their faces, you see exhaustion, you see burnout, but you also see great hope. Talk to me, talk to me about that. What, when you say you also see great hope, hope for what? A, re a revenge, hope for returning to their homeland, hope for, what, what, are, what do they hope for? All right, that's a good question. You want to take that one, Greg? Well, I think there is, uh, I, I'll just tell you a personal experience. We were outside this uh, center in Pashemish, um, and just as we were walking to our transportation, a bus came in uh, full of refugees right from Ukraine, and you could see the children and the parents coming out, and they came out of the bus, um, and we happened to be standing there, and the fear and the what's going to happen and the, 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 the terror and the uncertainty in their faces was just astounding. And then we came up to them. You know, we, we obviously had a language barrier, but one of my colleagues, Ari Goldstein, had a bag of lollipops, and he handed the lollipops out to the rabbis that were standing there. And we were just handing lollipops to these three and four-year-olds. And they looked at their mothers, is it okay? And she would nod yes. And there was, there was a twinkle in the eye. And there's, you know, always when you, when you leave a community, you, you have terror, but you also have hope because otherwise you wouldn't leave. If you didn't have hope, you'd stay put and you, and you just stay where you are. They left because they want to build for their, for their future. I come from Miami, you know, Jeff is down in South Florida, and I'm surrounded by, uh, you know, Cubans who many people thought, oh, when communism falls, the Cubans will go back to, to Cuba. That's not the case. They've made a life where they are in South Florida. And I think that's what's going to happen here as well. I think that uh, many people are going to say, we're going to use this opportunity to build a new life. One of the things that I will share with you, and I was, my, even my heart sang when I saw this, Richie. Um, some of the money that we're giving to the JCC in Krakow is used to hire um, Polish teachers 
to the Ukrainians. And we went into this classroom and there was the teacher doing the, you know, the ba, ba, boo, this is how you, and they're learning Polish because they have every inclination of staying in Poland. Um, and because they have to make a job, they have to make a living because much of what they have back home um, in Kharkiv, certainly Mariupol, we've seen the photographs. There's nothing, you can't go back. You know, it's like the Israelites. We're going we're gonna to march forward. We're going to leave what's left behind and with hope, um, hopefully build a new future. Yeah, That's what I experienced. The interesting, interesting thing that Greg is saying is something I reflect on many times. Where the parallel to the exodus from Egypt works and where the parallel fails. Now, it works in that sense of uncertainty. You know, the book of Numbers and certain texts in the book of Exodus make it very clear that the Israelites on several occasions said, let's go back to Egypt. It wasn't so bad. The truth of the matter is that the Ukrainian refugees that we encountered never wanted to leave Ukraine. They had beautiful lives there. They are fleeing destruction. Will they be able to go home? Many of them know there are no homes to go back to. But they will be able to rebuild their lives. I remember that in the refugee center at the border, there was a map of Europe. I found this to be startling, uh, which had cities on the map and then the number of kilometers from the refugee center to those cities, telling the refugees, this is how far you will have to go in order to get to those places. And I remember discussing with young mothers, where are they going to go? Are they going to go to Berlin? I hear Berlin is full. Will you go to Amsterdam? I hear that may be full. Maybe we'll go to Barcelona. So the piece of the Jewish resonance here is that sense of wandering, that sense of the uncertainty of the journey. Where was God in this trip? You know... I think of Yaakov Glachstein, the great American Yiddish poet, uh, who wrote a beautiful poem in Yiddish to my refugee God. Mm -hmm. It was Glachstein. Maybe it was Heschel. Somebody. It doesn't matter. God travels with refugees because you know something? I'm glad you asked that question. There's this mystical idea, I'm sure Greg knows it and has taught it as well and as eloquently, if not more so than I have, in Aramaic, this notion of Shekhinta Bugaluta, that the Shekhinah, the divine presence, is in exile. Right. For me, exile as a geographic and spiritual and existential issue is really at the very center of my understanding of my Jewish faith and the Jewish predicament. And so where was God in this? I think God is walking with the refugees. Thank you, Jeff. Last night, I'll give a different angle, um, probably a little bit more mainstream. I was leading a Shiva minion last night uh, for a member of my congregation. And while I was doing the Ahavat Olam, I read this line and I thought, my goodness, this is why I went to Poland. Um, In adversity and prosperity, may your law be our light and then may our deeds reflect your love, O God. Mm. So maybe if God is absent, if, if God is uh, hidden, we have to come and bring that light, bring that presence, bring that comfort, bring that support. 
as a reflection of God's presence. That's the task of the Jew, I think. To be, to use that phrase, mishutafim, partners with God in the work of redemption. And to gather the broken sparks of, of existence. Mm. For me, God is in the way that we tell this story. And, you know, I, I know that both Greg and I and our colleagues experience this many times in reaching out to refugees in the, in the sincere performance of a sacred act. And again, to bear witness. I keep on thinking of the, one of the Hebrew words for community. You know, like Eskimos reportedly have many words for snow. We have many words for community. There's Sibur, there's Kahila. Uh, but I think of the word Edah, which often shows up in the names of synagogues, like Adith Jeshurun in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. And one of the things that I find interesting is that the word Edah, which means community, has the word aid in there which means to bear witness, that we were a community of Edim. We were a community that bore witness to not only the catastrophe, but also the hope. I'll say something else as well. I don't know if Greg will agree with me, but others will. And it goes back to the original proddings that I felt to go on this trip. I feel that in some ways, my colleagues and I were reaching back in time and doing a tikkun, doing a teshuvah, an act of repentance, an act of repair for the failure of many American Jewish leaders 75 and 80 years ago to do what was necessary, uh, to have been there, to be present. And this, I can't say egotistical, but this very self-reflective piece of me that said, I am not going to let anyone say that my colleagues and I were not there when we could have been and that we did everything possible. And I, I feel this was a group protection of our legacy. And you know, Richard, I want to say something, because I want to bring it back to sacred aging. You haven't asked the question, but I'm going to ask the question for you. What does this have to do with sacred aging? It has to do with legacy. It has to do with the, the, the ethical will that we are writing for our children and our grandchildren. Every single person on that trip will be able to say to their children and their descendants, Hineni, I was there. I was there. I did what I could. And that's really powerful stuff because my parents have blessed memory. And I dare say your parents, Richard, probably did not have the same thing that they could have said. Well, you know, it's very interesting that you raise that issue of, the, of history because we, as you know, Passover and everything in history – but to be truthful, you probably were walking on ground last week that our ancestors walked on 70 years ago, uh, trying to flee or being herded off to a camp. And here you are walking on that same Polish soil, which, as you know, has not had the greatest history of love and affection to the Jewish people. But here you were walking, walking on that soil and without becoming too hyperbolic, somewhere in some other level of reality, millions and millions of souls would probably say Shehechiano and Tudaraba. I mean, could, could I, could I, could I respond to that? I, I was in Poland about four years ago. I took a congregational mission to Poland and then to Israel. And I will tell you, um, I couldn't wait to leave because I went from concentration camp to ghetto 
to uh, to, uh, to to plazas where the Jews were rounded up, and Jews used to be here, and Jews died here, and uh, it was I was miserable. And I when I got to Israel, I finally was able to breathe. This was a completely different trip for me. Um, we actually, when we were leaving to go to Prashemesh, the guide pointed out that's where the Jews were rounded up. And I remember going there and I remember spending half a day there. And um, this, was a, this was a different experience for me. This was, a, this was a Poland that was trying to do the right thing when it didn't do the right thing 80 years ago. And I believe this with all of my heart. We will either let the past destroy our future or we will let our present define a new future. And for many, many years, I mean, most Jews wouldn't drive a German car, right? But now we do because the Germany of today is not the Germany of 1945, and the Poland of today is not the Poland of 1941. So, um, so I, 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 I was able to breathe this time. Um, and I thank Jeff for giving me that opportunity. And, and I thought to myself, you know, I, I might even come back to Poland just as a tourist because it was just so beautiful. And, um, and that was not the Poland I experienced when I was in Majdanek. You know, it was just, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I fell in love with Krakow this time. You know, um, there's something very interesting. Uh, we are forgetting that the Polish Jews were the victims of a double sucker punch, first by the Nazis and then by the communists. Right. And, you know, Greg will remember that we passed by uh, homes and doors uh, that alluded to the mezuzot that used to be on those doors that were ripped off during the time of the Soviet oppression. There are many people in Poland now untold tens of thousands who have a Jewish background, who had Jewish grandparents who suppressed and hid their Jewish identity, and they're coming back to Judaism. So too, there is an oddly unsettling, but in some ways sweet, uh, obsession that Poles have with Jewish culture. Uh, one night that we were there, I think, Greg, I don't know if you were with us, we went out to dinner and the waitress heard us uh, speaking Hebrew. And she said, are you speaking Hebrew? And we said, yes. She said, oh, I take Hebrew in university. She's not Jewish, but she's curious. If you go to the Jewish quarter in Krakow, which is only two or four square blocks at most with historic synagogues, you'll see a Jewish bookstore owned and operated by non-Jews. You'll see an Israeli restaurant owned and operated by non-Jews. You will see a klezmer uh, place owned and operated by non-Jews. In some ways, it feels cloying. In some ways, it feels like Williamsburg, Virginia, where you have people dressing up as colonists in the 1700s. But this time, I've, I chose to interpret it as being respectful and almost wistful. Uh, before we run out of time, I just have to ask you one last question. And again, thank you very, very much. Again, we're, we're speaking with Rabbi Jeff Salkin, the rabbi of Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, and Rabbi Greg Marks, the rabbi of Beth Orr in Springhouse, Pennsylvania. Um, you've been back several days, you've unpacked your suitcases. Um, what, what did you unpack from your soul from this trip? That I was there. 
that mm. I could come back and make my synagogue proud. I, I did not just go, Richie, for myself. I went representing my shul, and I brought their resources, and I brought their, their supplies, I brought their prayers. I was uh, their shaliach tzibor. It wasn't for me. It was a. It was an honor for me to go. And it wasn't just when I was handing out that lollipop and when I was handing out those things. That was my shul trying to say we're here. Um, and uh, for me, it was the greatest honor. And that's the joy of being a, a pulpit rabbi. Right. That uh, that I'm not just there for myself. I'm there for my people, and allowed my people uh, to give me that honor to represent them. Well, thank you. I was there for my people as well, but I also think I was there for the past and I was there for the future. Mm. I am so well acquainted with how bloodstained this story is, but I was there in some ways to bear witness to the transformation of the Polish people themselves. You know, we forget something. In the list of the top three nations that provided righteous of all nations, righteous Gentiles, that saved Jewish lives during the Shoah, number one was Poland. Number two, the Netherlands. Number three was Ukraine. And so I took myself out of this mantra that I had felt years before when I was in Poland. I'm wondering if that person's grandparents had hurt Jews. When I would now look to people on the street, I could say, I wonder if that person's grandparents had helped Jews. Save them. Yeah. Hid them. Hid them. Yeah. Jeff, Greg, Tadaraba, Haslacha, and thank you. Uh, thank you for all you've done. And I appreciate your time very, very, very much. And uh, I hope to see you soon. Just stay healthy. Stay thank healthy. You. you too. And a good rest of awesome. And to you, Greg. You. Bye-bye. To all of you, thank you again for your being with us today on today's edition of the Seekers of Meaning podcast and TV show from Jewish Sacred Aging. Just a reminder, if you'd like to help us continue these podcasts, uh, if you go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com and go down to the donate button, you can make a tax-free donation to help our uh, programs continue. Also a reminder that Seekers of Meaning is produced and broadcast at the Lubetkin Media Center here in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and a shout out to our producer, Steve Lubeck. Thank you again for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, Stay safe, stay healthy. This is Rabbi Richard Address, your host of the Seekers of Meaning programs. Take care until we see you again. Be well, be safe, be kind to each other. Shalom.